Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Randy is winning. He's out. Yes, Randy is out. Look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Yeah, good morning. This is John Pielli, Passball Show, of course, right here on EMTR Radio Network. Glad to be with you another Saturday morning. A ton of stuff to get into. Passball Show on the road series is going to continue today. We talk um, with three different players that I got a chance to meet with this past weekend over in Pennsylvania. Um, we got interviews with Kurt Simmons, Harry Warner, and Carl Duzer. I'm going to let you know a little bit about them if, in case you don't know already as we move through the program today. But we're going to start the program on a somber note. Uh, of course, Ralph Kiner, longtime uh, power-hitting outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates and original Met broadcaster for the past 50-plus seasons, passes away at the age of 91. And, you know, a guy that certainly is going to leave his, uh, his place in Major League Baseball history and a guy that is certainly as beloved of a figure as ever existed in this game. And here's a guy that no doubt was popular. Um, not only as a player, but as a superstar representative of, you know, stardom in the country. He was on many commercials. He dated, you know, models and was a very sought-after type of guy, not only by the women, but by people that, you know, wanted a chance to speak with him. And he only always handled things very gracefully. Never turned down an interview. Never turned down an autograph. Was that kind of guy. And a guy that, in, in that superstar uh, comparison when you compare it to today's athletes is something that absolutely would not have fit in with what you see nowadays. And here's a guy that in his rookie season in 1946 hit 23 home runs but led the National League and would end up doing that the next six seasons after that. Seven years to start out his career from 1946 to 1952. He led the National League in home runs. He was top five in the MVP voting back-to-back years in 1949 and 1950. Uh, you know, of course, his career didn't last as long as it was expected to. Uh, During the 1953 season, he was traded to the Chicago Cubs, uh, a bad pirate team, a team that was finishing in last place. And he has the famous quote saying that his boss said to him, we could finish last place without you. We don't need you to finish last place. And a guy who finished his career with 369 career home runs and was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame in 1975. Yes, his career probably ended a little earlier than it should have, but you know, tell me the next 
hitter that's going to go out there and lead the league in home runs for the first seven years of their career. I mean, his OPS was immaculate, 946 for his career. Obviously something that wasn't really kept track of that days, but was always a power-hitting slugger, hit a lot of home runs, Was uh, has, has great memories of Forbes Field and is going to be remembered as one of the greatest hitters to ever hit at that ballpark. And then, of course, he parlays it after retiring after the 1955 season into 50 three years, 52, 53 years in the Mets broadcast booth from 1962 until last year where he ends up broadcasting a couple of games. Obviously, at his elderly age, wasn't able to do you know the play-by-play for whole games like he did in his prime, but along with Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy, he was a part of my youth and a part of a lot of New York Mets fans' youth. And one of the better broadcasters may not be the best spoken at times. He would have the Ralphisms that you can maybe relate to what you hear out of Yogi Berra or Phil Rizzuto, where you kind of just say silly things. And Tim McCarver uh, was interviewed by one of uh, one of the networks this past weekend and really shared some very interesting stories. So you get a chance, look that up on the internet. Tim McCarver, a guy who worked with Ralph Conner for 16 years in the Mets broadcast booth in the 80s and 90s, has some great stories. And he says, you know, hey, uh, I think he referred to him one time as Tim MacArthur. And they got in a big discussion about General MacArthur and stuff like that. And you know he's 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 an unbelievable character, an unbelievable uh, signification of what's great about Major League Baseball. A guy that, remember, said uh, on this Father's Day, I want to w- wish everybody once again a very happy birthday. Uh, he would have the way with words that he'd say stuff, and he may not be 100% conscious of what he was saying, but was always eloquent and always said it in a way that he wasn't embarrassed if he said something silly or said something wrong. And that's what I remember, being a, you know, being a young man and following the New York Mets as long as I did. And I know many in this game and many New York Mets fans followed Ralph Kiner from day one, from 1962. And uh, here's, a, here's a guy that certainly had an unbelievable impact on a lot of people's lives. You talk about the old-timers that got to see him play for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the late 40s and the 1950s. They know how good of a hitter he was. No doubt he's a Hall of Famer. No question about it. But those of us that got to see Ralph Kiner speak and do what he was gifted at doing, he went right into the broadcast booth. You know, he was he probably got the job because he was a former player. And remember, the Mets put together a broadcast team. They had the national guy in Lindsey Nelson. They had the the local guy in Bob Murphy, and then they had the player. They threw the player in there, Ralph Kiner, Hall of Famer. Everybody knows who Ralph Kiner is, and Ralph Kiner obviously passes away at the age of 91, Baseball Hall of Famer, absolutely great man. And I'm glad to be joined by, obviously, a well-known baseball author, Billy Staples, who's also a correspondent from the Past Ball Show. Billy, thanks for having a couple minutes today. I'm glad to be part of it, John, anytime. Hey, listen, uh, of course, Ralph Kiner, man, he's had an impact in a lot of people's lives just from watching him. If you never had the chance to meet him, you could see how he could still impact you from the way he personifies himself. In your opinion, Billy, what would be the best way you'd describe Ralph Kiner as a person being right there next to him? Um, I was, he, was, he was truly um, a Hollywood person. I mean, growing up in California and dating and marrying pretty women, but he had a heart of gold. So as much as he was Hollywood and great and famous, equally as much as he was kind and gracious. Now, in regards to your your dealings with him, and you know, you're having a chance to meet him and speak with him, what, what would you what would you consider the biggest thing that he showed you that kind of backs everything that you just said? 
Uh, the, the word that comes to mind is normalcy. The first conversation I remember having with him was when he arrived in the Old Timers Day locker room after being inducted into the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And I was sitting at his locker with him. And he he was, I said, how was it up there in Cooperstown? And, and he, he commented about the feelings and how kind it was. And he said, he said, babe, I signed more autographs uh, in the past couple of days than I have the rest of my life combined. But I enjoyed signing for, for each and every fan. And that was the start of our friendship right up until last summer, where I, I brought a couple of students up to sit and hang with them and meet with them. Just after he got uh, out of the hospital, he had a toe removed uh, with some surgery. And uh, I said, how about I bring some kids up for a visit? And he said, sure. Nothing changed over uh, a 40-year period. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Billy Staples. Now, uh, you know, Ralph Kiner was obviously an outstanding ball player, Hall of Fame power hitter for the Pirates for all those years, leading the league in home runs. Became a legendary broadcaster for his 50-plus years with the New York Mets organization, obviously part of the original broadcasting team of Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson from 1962. Would you would you agree with this statement? Him as as a man kind of trumped everything he did, no matter how great it was as a player and as a broadcaster. Um, I my heart says yes, but in reality, when when you're talking about somebody who, as a rookie, led the league in home runs, and then after doing that for the next six consecutive seasons, he led the league in home runs. Yes. He was kind and great and gracious and giving, but how in the world are you ever going to have a player start their career by leading the league at home runs for the first seven years? I don't, I don't care what you know about Ralph Kerner or why he's in the Hall of Fame. That's just ridiculous. That's like, that's unheard of. It's never been done before, and it's obviously not here. When's the last time a rookie won the home run crown and then won it the next year or two years, let alone seven? So, yes, I will, I will compliment him on his kind and, and gentle personality and my friendship with him. But that is a statistic that is not only unmatchable, it's unheard of. Absolutely. Billy, thanks for the time, and, you know, I'll talk to you soon. It's a pleasure being on your show. We'll be right back. Take a quick break and back on with a lot more stuff. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore PLE. And follow my Facebook page, JohnPLE.com. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We'll offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. 
Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise an MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And the first interview I recorded this past weekend was with former coach for the Toronto Blue Jays in their inaugural season in 1977 and would later be a coach on the staff of the Milwaukee Brewers that won the American League pennant in 1982. And that was Harry Warner. And Harry had a, had a career in the minor leagues. He stuck around for a long time, never made it up to the big show. But right after that, 1960, he became a minor league manager where he was a minor league manager from 1960 to 1976 and a relationship he had with Roy Hartsfield who became the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays uh, allowed him to join the coaching staff in the inaugural season of 1977 like I said he ends up on the coaching staff under Harvey Keen in 1982 for the Brewers that made it to the World Series and he talks about some interesting stuff because here's a guy that didn't make it to the show as a player but had to go back and redo it as a coach and he ends up making it into the major leagues and has has himself an American League championship ring with the Milwaukee Brewers. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former coach for the Toronto Blue Jays and Milwaukee Brewers and minor league first baseman, Harry Warner. Passball show here, John Pielli. We're happy to be joined by former minor league first baseman, uh, minor league coach, major league coach, and uh, minor league manager, Harry Warner. Harry, thanks for having a couple minutes, and thanks for allowing us into your home. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate this, all that you do. Yeah, of course, you you know, you obviously have many, many years associated with the game of baseball. And, you know, you were, you know, you, you first really started playing baseball professionally, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 1940s, right? Yes, 1946. So what is, what comes to your mind when you think of yourself as a player? You know, you, you obviously came up, you're talented, you had, you had enough to, to be brought into major league organizations and to play in the minor leagues. Uh, what, what are your biggest memories of playing in minor league baseball? Oh, John, there's so many that it would be hard for me to pinpoint. Uh, when I managed in the minor leagues, uh, you know, it was always nice to uh, 
see your, some of your players that you manage you to the big league. Absolutely. Like, uh, I played with Hank Aaron in 1953. I uh, managed Craig Nettles, Rod Carew, Burt Bylevin, and I could go on and on. George Mitterwald. Uh, uh, I, I just so many, and I that, that no, absolutely which, which makes you feel real good in, inside. Yeah, so now going back to when when you were playing, when you're you know you're up there, you're obviously you were a first baseman, you were a left hand hitter, right hand thrower, right. if I'm not mistaken. Right. And you know you, you ended up spending a, you know a significant amount of times in the minor leagues. We're, we're talking. We're also talking about a time that's a little different to the way the minor league system is set up now. Yes, because yes. there were there were players that were probably had the ability to play in the major leagues, yes. but chose to play in the minor leagues where they could play every day and make close to the same money. Right. Uh, was, was was that something that came across your mind at all while you were playing? Well, I I really if you talk about somebody being a greenhorn, I was a greenhorn. I was 17 years old to start with, and probably one of the things that stands out in my mind when I was signed with the Poconos, and uh, my first game, uh, we played at, at Bloomingdale, New Jersey, and uh, my first that bat I hit a home run. The second time at bat I hit another home run. The third time at bat, I grounded out, and the fourth time at bat, I hit a double. So you think back on that, and what if I struck out four times or popped up or whatever? Would I really still been in baseball? But that opened the door. They said, wow, wait a minute. So really, that's one thing that stood out in my mind. And besides that, I made $100 a month. Which, which was good money back then, right? My, my take-out, my take-home pay was $48.02. Uh, and obviously, you know, we're talking a different time where uh, oh, the value of the dollar was different. You could get a lot more with Buck than you can now. Yeah, you you know. They're gonna get rid of coins soon. It's, it's getting that ridiculous. Loaf of bread to five cents, you know. <laughs> and once again, John Pielli here with Harry Warner. Now, you know when when you you were playing, was there you know coming back all these years later? Is there a disappointment in your mind or anything that comes to mind in regards to never playing at the major league level? Well, is it like I say, John? There's so many things that happened in Korea. I played for, what, 14 years, which is unheard of today. If you don't, if you don't get going, <laughs> you know, they, they say bye-bye. No, good point, because there's a lot of, there's a lot you of know, players that I talk to now. And somehow I hung on, and, uh, and then finally in, in, in 1960, Sherry Robinson, the farm director, came to me and and wanted to know if I wanted to manage in the system. So 
I just, if I say it again, I, I gotta do something. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so, now, when you were playing, did you did, did you ever aspire to want to get into coaching or managing? Was that something you thought well, about? Well, it was my and actually it was my goal to get to the major league somehow, and uh, I didn't make it as a player, and I didn't make it as a coach at that time, and. Uh, Finally, in 1977, Roy Hartsfield, who I knew very well, uh, got the manager job at, at Toronto. Of course. And uh, he called me in October and wondered if I'd like to coach third base for them. And I said, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> no question. Once again, John Fiali here with Harry Warner. Now, when you know, when you you had a chance to manage for a while in the minor leagues, if I'm not mistaken, 1960 yeah, to 1976. I think that was, I think 19 years. Yeah, so 19 years total. You ended up managing again in 1980 and 1983. What what were your what were your biggest memories from being a manager in the minor leagues? Because you know you, you're you're there. You didn't just manage in the minor leagues. You managed for many almost two full decades. Well, naturally, uh, it's more than managing. It's it's the clubhouse. You know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. Yeah. And uh, you had to be cautious. You had to be a mother, a father, a psychologist. You know, you had all these things that they had troubles with. And it's... Uh, and to keep harmony in the clubhouse, sometimes he did the fight, and you know, he had to be the referee. Yeah. But as far as one thing standing out, I, I, I can't pinpoint anything. It's it's just one mass things after another. Now, when you there's a question I'm going to tie back to in when you were when you were coaching and before that when you were a minor league player. Did you ever feel once you got into coaching because you got you went right up and you became a minor league manager right after you were done playing essentially? Did you feel that same type of battle within you to you know go from the minors to the majors that you did as a player? I had to get to the big league somehow, and I didn't know how or when. My dear wife, God bless her, said to me one time, and this was in 1970. Six. I was managing at the Wisconsin Rapids, and she said, I talked to her on the phone, and she said, why don't you quit? And I said, Betty, what do you suggest, that I be a brain surgeon? <laughs> I'm 50-some years old now. What am I going to do? I said, i got to stay with it and hope and pray. Yeah, and lo and behold, the next year I went to the big leagues. Wow, that's awesome. Now, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Roy Hartsfield, because obviously he was somebody that you knew in the game well, years before. Well, when I managed at Orlando, Roy managed St. Petersburg. Okay. And uh, we were playing them this particular night, and uh, we were out there taking batting practice, and uh, I looked over in their dugout, and somebody was laying down in the dugout on the bench. So I went over and it was Roy. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I don't feel good. I said, we're getting you to the hospital now, buddy. He had an emergency appendectomy. Oh, wow. And 
course, that really stuck in his mind. And I went to see him twice in the hospital. But after that, we were closer then than we were before. And I always heard from him until he died about a year ago. And I'll tell you, what, what really stands out about Roy is the fact that he was always very loyal to people yeah. that were close to him. And you yeah. saw you saw that when he got the manager job in Toronto. He brought in a handful of players and yeah. played in, you know, in, in a system with San Diego when he was a minor league manager. And, right. you know, obviously the experience that you had with him yeah. stuck in his head. Yeah. Uh, he, was in, he seemed like an extremely loyal guy. Yeah, so Roy was a great guy, and, and I appreciate he. Yeah, one time he called me, this was five, six years ago, and he said, Harry, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you need any money? <laughs> and I said, Roy, I'll, I'll get back at him somehow, but I thank you so much. Now, who would do that? No, exactly, and that's the, the kind of reputation the man had, and that's why... I, you know, I love hearing the, the the stories that connect yeah. themselves to Roy Hartsfield yeah. because of you know the the kind of the kind of man he was and his loyalty towards yeah. a lot of those around him. Big guy. Now you end up uh, joining, of course, the coaching staff for the expansion Toronto Blue Jays. This is you know we were talking about baseball in Canada, of course, you know eight years earlier, you know in Montreal, yeah. and now you're getting it over in the American League for the first time. Tell us a little bit about if you could if you could remember you know spring training that year coming together as a coaching staff with all the new players and stuff like that. Well, the only person I knew on the coaching staff was Don Lepper, who was a catcher at, at Pittsburgh, and uh, Bob Miller was the pitching coach. He's dead. He got killed in an automobile accident. Jackie Moore, who was coaching at uh, Texas for the last couple of years. Yeah. And uh, it was an A's manager at one point. Yeah. And uh, then we had uh, Bobby Doyle, who you might, uh, of course, I'll turn with Bobby Doyle. Who you might have heard of. <laughs> he has some great stories about Ted Williams. Uh, I'm sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> Ted was, of course, always talking to me. He told, he told, uh, Bobby, Bobby, he said, hit the top half of the ball. Bobby looked at me and said, he said, I have enough trouble just hitting the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, so but we soon became a, a knit unit, and we had a lot of, naturally, we had all the guys that nobody wanted in the expansion. Yeah, see what they do is they put them out for seventy-five thousand bucks, and if they're not on the forty-man roster, they're eligible to pick up by this expansion club. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I follow the expansion drafts pretty well. I mean, you get it. You know, you, there is some cream kind of at the top of the draft. Yeah. You talk about let's say first ten picks. Let's say there's two teams that are drafted. But after that, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you're taking, you're taking shots on guys, yeah. and you understand that they're left unprotected for a reason. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, if they were that valued by their parents. what nobody wanted to be. Yeah. So, it's, you know, it's gotten a little bit better over the drafts. I mean, following the last couple, they, they, they've been more players available, and, 
you know, it, it's, it's allowed for them to start off fresh. But obviously, starting a new franchise, obviously no history to it before. Yeah. Um, was was there an expectation that it was going to take a little time in Toronto well, before they, the team was going to be able to? They, they, they come better. It was it was Pat Yelly and Pete Vizzi, and uh, they were and they they done a good job because. Uh, you know, they beat the Phillies in the World Series there, and that was, and uh, so on. And uh, in 1978, Roy had to uh, leave the club. Uh, his uh, wife, Alice, needed an operation. Okay. So he named me his interim manager. Wow. And we had a tough schedule coming up. <laughs> the Yankees, Boston, and Baltimore. Then you're talking about three teams that were all were all very good at that same time. So we, the first game, <laughs> yeah, I said, you still want me to coach third base? And now I said, put Jackie Moore out there and let him take a standing dugout. So anyway, the first game we beat the Yankees in Toronto. Uh, Dave Lemansic was a pitcher, and uh, it was a high-scoring game. But I still had the ball. For my first win as a major league manager, I didn't get it. I, didn't, I never thought of stuff like that. But uh, one of the players brought the ball in, and Harry Warner, first major league game win as a manager. I think it was 10 to 8. Okay. But Lamanchek got the win. He was the first, that was his first win in 78. Oh, wow. So, you know, a little. So that was a memorable time. That was a memorable time in a lot of accounts. And we finished up uh, 7 and 11. We won yeah. 70 games. Yeah. That looks amazing. It's in the books. And, uh, yeah. you know, of course, uh, you know, uh, you, yeah. you, end, you end up through your time in Toronto. Um, of course, they go through a little bit of a regime change, and you end up after afterwards, if I'm not mistaken, you return back to the minors as a manager in 1980? 1980, you went back to uh, and uh, Billy Smith and Pat Gilly and Pete called me and said, uh, uh, how about going uh, up to Syracuse and managing force there? And that was AAA, right? That was AAA. So I did, and uh, that was 80, and then 81, Buck Rogers called me and wanted me to go over to Milwaukee. So, so how, was your, how was your relationship with Buck Rogers? Was he a well, guy that you've known Buck for years? Buck was a catcher who, who played at Knoxville. Okay. And for some reason, he followed me around like a puppy dog. I don't know why, but he did. He's a good guy. But... Uh, he was worse than Jimmy Leland. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy was a player at Montgomery, and I was walking, walking behind me. And he was a great guy, too. So that was Buck and I got to know each other pretty well, and Buck said, come on over with me. And so that's what happened. And of course, he got fired in the June of 70, of 80. Yeah, and Harvey took over. Yeah, so you know, as you're, as you're going through, once again, John Pialli here with Harry Warner. You know, you, you you end up taking over in a coaching staff with a Milwaukee team that 
probably has a lot more upside than what you were used to seeing in Toronto for a couple of years. Oh, yeah. You know, you're talking about that expansion team and, you know, yeah. in 77, 78, 79, the loss of if I'm mistaken, over 100 games every season. So, you know, you come over to Milwaukee, what what stands out to you the most? Is there is there a player or two that you're like, hey, you know, this, this team's going to be good because well, we got a player you know, Robin yeah. Young. Yeah. You want to talk about a good player, Robin Young, Paul Monitor. Ben Ogilvy, Norman Thomas, Charlie Moore. Oh, God, Ted Simmons was up. Yeah, Ted Simmons, Cecil Cooper, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of. We had Raleigh as our savior until he hurt his arm in 82. Yeah, and then of course, you know, you end up, uh, you know, the one season with Buck Rogers, 1982 comes, he ends up being let go, and uh, Harvey Keen comes in. Did you, what, what did you notice was the biggest difference, you know, once Harvey Keen came, took over? Was, well, it, was, was it just one of those things that they needed a jolt there? They, they had some guys that really weren't fond of Buck, <laughs> and you could sense it. And of course, they would go to Bud Seeley, who then was the president of yeah, Absolutely. And uh, I could see it coming, and so could he. Yeah, so there was some undermining going on. Yeah. That's a shame, man. I always, I always yeah. hate when stuff ends up going like that because from, you know, Buck before and after. Uh, you know, established himself yeah. as a quality major league manager and, yeah. you know, was a guy that certainly was capable of doing the job. Yeah, too. He got fired when we were in Seattle. And the phone rang about nine o'clock, and it was Buck. And he said, "Come on up, I want to see you." So I, I knew, and I knew by his voice. So we went to breakfast together, and he just faded out and didn't say goodbye to anybody. It was actually the best way to do it. Yeah, and you know, obviously another guy that was known for being very professional in his nature yeah. and stuff, and yeah. you know, never really made it about him. Yeah. So that that was the story there. So the only thing that Harvey he had, Puff only had a very few rules. One thing, you had to wear a sport coat on the airplane. You didn't have to wear a tie. You could have a open shirt. Be on time all the time and play hard. So like when Harvey right. took over, he, Harvey just took the balls and bats and threw it out, threw them out there and said, "There you go, go at it. <laughs> no rules. You can dress any way you wanted. You could have dungarees on." And of course, the guys it, they like that, you know. They hate to be told what to do. Yeah, sometimes when there's a managerial change like that, the person that comes in is just looking for a contrast or something that's yeah. directly the opposite of what they're used to yeah. seeing. Because, you know, let's be honest, human nature says that, that people respond to that. People respond yeah. to, all right, there's a big difference, whether it's right or wrong. So that's, you know, it's probably more motivating. That that's really what happened, and, and it worked out fine for Harvey. Absolutely. The Milwaukee Brewers. In '81, we we got to the playoffs. Yeah. At that time, it was a different format. Yeah, of course, it was the first ever division series. Yeah. And 
uh, we were tied with the Yankees at two games apiece. And we were playing in the fifth game in Yankee Stadium. And uh, we're behind by two runs in the ninth. And we had two out, two on. I think we had two on. I know there was two out. And Don Money was a hitter. And he hit a ball in Yankee Stadium to left field. And I said, oh, come on, get out of here. But it was right, if you know anything about the stadium, there's a little gulch in there. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, it's that one wrong place. Right, right where he hit it in that, where he had room and reached up and made us there down. We were done. And that was it. So, you know, the following season comes, you know, we just talked about it. you go through the managerial change. Once again, John Kelly here with Harry Warner. Now, you, you know, you end up making the playoffs again. And you're, you're there in a tough, you know, a tough ALCS. Um, one that probably could have gone either way as well. But, you know, you guys, you guys played well. Now, tell us a little bit about that experience. Because coming off of the season before, where I'm sure there was a little bit of disappointment because the team had built itself up. Well... What happened in 82 in the playoffs is this was a, uh, a best of five. Yeah, best of five, also. Best of five. And we were playing the Angels, the winner in the, in the West. In the West. Gene Mock, the manager. So now we open in, uh, in the Angels Park in California. Yeah, and we lose the first two. All they gotta do is win them one. We'll go back from Milwaukee and we beat them three in a row yeah. to qualify for a series. When when did you feel was the biggest momentum change? Because I'm sure dropping the first two games in California, uh, probably you know you're, you're obviously not going to give up till the last moment. But down two games with the you know best yeah. you know, of five. You know, did, did you feel the momentum in that first game, or did you feel it going into the second game or the third game? When was well? I think everybody knew that there's no tomorrow. No, absolutely, there's no tomorrow. Sometimes it brings out the best of people. And we won three in a row, and Steve uh, Mark, of course, took some some flack. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we had, let's see. We, this was about the seventh inning. And uh, we have uh, Charlie Moore running at second base, and Cecil Cooper is the hitter. And Gene Mock, you can see the, you can see the bullpen at the old county stadium. And, and Andy Hassler, our left-hander, was warming up, and everybody's saying. You've got to bring in Hasler to pitch to Cooper, who's the left hand. Yeah, of course. He didn't. And Cooper singled to left field. And I swore Charlie on a close play at the plate. And we went ahead and we held on and won it. That was the seventh game. It was the fifth game. Yeah, I thought you, know, you could get another conversation about all the Ollie's running pitching staff. Why Gene did not bring Happy Scotty Bringer in. We're not going to pinch it for Cecil Cooper. He's got to face a left hander. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes he was like he was like a blind man running a pitching staff. You know, he, you know, there's a lot a lot of instances of that that ended up costing him games. And of course, the Brewers are the benefit of of that you know that lack of move or the mismanagement of the bullpen. So you're on to the World Series. Well, you know, Gene also messed up the Phillies. Yeah, 1964. Yeah, no question. Calvin McGliss, our pitching coach up there, was was the pitching coach at Philadelphia at that time. He moved his rotation up one notch. Yeah. He's going with a two man rotation for a couple of days, and that ends up costing him, of course, a 10 game losing streak, the six yeah. and a half games with, uh, I believe, 15 games to go or 14 games to go. Uh, you know, one of the epic collapses in the history of all Major League Baseball. But, uh, you know, like I just said, the, the Brewers end up going to the World Series, just make, take on the St. Louis Cardinals. Strange game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and what, what was it like to finally be in the World Series? You know, you conquered well, you know, one, one of your battles. Well, I ask you that. that. That is so hard to describe. You got, you got news people running all over the place. The clubhouse is a mess. There's, they, they got cameras all over the place. I mean, you can't describe how many people were there that were covering the series. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's, a, it's a lesser extent of what you see for, let's say, like the Super Bowl. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you know, you think about baseball being Nationals game, you know, the national game, the players that are all known within the regions and the organization and the coaches, and now everybody's watching the World Series. Now all of a sudden the whole nation's figuring out who you are. So... The series went, we win the first one in St. Louis, we lose the second one, we come home to Milwaukee, we win, we win, we lose, and then go back to St. Louis. We've got to win one out of the two and couldn't do it. Yeah, that's the way it works out sometimes, but you know, did you notice a difference? Let's say, because you mentioned about, let's say, the media coverage. You know that they're there, they're following you and, and team probably more than you've seen it before. Did you notice any other difference in, in the World Series in itself? Do you feel that, let's say, the Brewers played as they would go out there and play any other game? No, no. There's so much hype with it. You know, I'm sure the adrenaline flows very hard. Yeah, of course. Naturally, but uh, no, they all. It was a good series, and like I always contended, if we had Raleigh fingers, yeah, that was a tough injury. I think we could have won it. Yeah, no question, man. You have a guy that's gotten you to that point, and all of a sudden he's not available. Yeah, we had we had him down three one in the seventh, and I see. Oh, if we only had Raleigh, bring him in now. There's no tomorrow. Oh, exactly. You, you would love to have that opportunity. But once again, John Fielder here with Harry Warner, former Major League coach, one-time Major League manager, former Minor League manager, former Minor League player. All these different years you're associated with Major League Baseball. Like like we said earlier, you could trace back to the 1940s where you're playing in the Minor Leagues. Yeah. If, if I give you one thing to mention as far as what stood out the most for you all these years associated with, with baseball, what do you think that would be? I think probably the day that I was named to be a coach in the big thing. Uh, absolutely, man. I, that, that, that's what I would have guessed. And I'll tell you, you know, it was a, you know, it was a success story because you know, it shows that you know, even, even not making it to the majors as a player, uh, you still had the determination. You got yourself into managing right away. You, yeah. you, know, you did. Your, you put in your time. I mean, uh, you know, the amount of years you were as a minor league manager, 
uh, allowed you to have the opportunity, and you were lucky enough to know a couple of great people in the game, yeah. like Roy Hartsfield and Buck Rogers. Yeah, I put all of them I had, and they were hard to bring me up. It was like when I managed Syracuse, at this time, I had two years in the big leagues. Yes. That don't count. You had to have four, or part of four, even if it's a month. So I got a hold of Pete and Pat Gillick, and I said, hey, guys, you know, I need, I need a little more time. How about bringing me up with Syracuse ends the season? He said, drag a plane and come on up. Oh, that's awesome. I'll tell you, I actually looked that up. I was I was aware that you had coached on the 1980 Blue Jays. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a story. It's exactly how it happened. Yeah. You got your fourth year there. Of course, you yeah. went on to Milwaukee. Yeah. And then, of course, I, I did, was lucky enough to get two more years in Milwaukee. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Harry, I want to thank you for having some time. appreciate all of those stories. And thanks so for I got five-plus years in the big leagues. You yeah. know, I don't know what would be. Uh, what would have happened if I didn't because Betty's medical bill with her cancer was a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow. With all the chemo treatments, the radiation, and it didn't cost me one penny. Uh, and I tell you, that was worth worth every bit of it. Harry, I want to thank you for you know number one allowing me in your house, number two for sharing all these good nice stories, man. Yeah. Yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. Fantastic having a chance to catch up with Harry Warner, great guy. And I tell you, man, uh, you know, the stories about him making it to the major leagues as a coach I think was phenomenal. And he has his AL championship ring to show for it. John P.L.A. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to download the iPhone or Android apps if you haven't already. And, of course, uh, you know, if you're on the computer right now, you can switch over to my JohnPLA.com page, which you can find right here on MTRmedia.com. We're going to take a quick break, finish up the first hour, Second hour is going to be rapid fire. John Pielli, Passball Show on the Road Series from Pennsylvania. I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Case is empty, blah. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Case empty, blah. Bases empty, blah. Bases empty, blah. Bases empty, blah. Bases empty, blah. 
Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to get into the Bases Empty Block segment of this program. I'm going to start off by talking about something that the Oakland Athletics, and I like to call them the Oakland Analytics, failed to use in their approach by trading for pitcher Jim Johnson from the Baltimore Orioles. And, yeah, let's be honest. We know about Moneyball. We know about where that stands and uh, the, the over probably the overhype that it's gotten in Billy Bean for his approach. But let's be honest, over the last couple of years, it's worked. He's been winning, but he's also been willing to spend a little more money than he has in the past. And he ends up making a trade for Jim Johnson from the Baltimore Orioles, uh, who had save totals of 51 and 50 over the past respective two seasons. And, you know, he ends up bringing him in to be the closer. He trades Jamal Weeks over to the Orioles, where he has a chance to see if he could be a major league player, maybe as a second baseman for the Orioles this season. We'll see how it works out. But Grant Balfour, who was their closer over the last two seasons with the A's for the last three seasons, they let him walk. He ends up signing a contract with the Tampa Bay Rays. And Jim Johnson gets traded to the Oakland Athletics. And, you know, you would think, hey, Billy Bean's always one step ahead of the game. In this approach, i got to be honest with you, for a guy that's had a fantastic offseason that I'm totally on board with, he's done a very good job this offseason getting his team ready for this year, I don't understand the Jim Johnson move, and I don't understand it for this uh, particular reason. We look at the stat of a save. It's, it's, a, it's one of the more overrated stats in all of Major League Baseball. We talk about wins. We talk about uh, RBIs being a little overrated. The save stat is even more overrated considering what the game has come to in regards to the changes in the use of the bullpen. It used to be a closer would go in there and pitch two, sometimes three innings. Now a guy has a three-run lead and he goes in there with nobody on base and gets the last out of the game, he gets a save. So the save, obviously it's an overvalued stat. So let's get that into the approach of Billy Bean, who is obviously using the analytics. And like I said, the Oakland analytics is what we're going to call them because of the way things have worked out with the with the team, the way they've you know kind of gone under the radar and not necessarily going after big guys, not looking to pay their own guys a ton of money. But in, in this case with Jim Johnson, he gets $10 million in arbitration, so he's obviously getting paid all right. But let's be honest. Uh, you know, we talk about what I just said about relief pitchers getting that last out to get the save. And uh, Johnson has stood out over the past two seasons. He's been a top closer. Based on the save, save statistics, of course he has. Uh, what, he became only a 10th pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball to record 50 saves in a season. And he became only the second in the history of Major League Baseball to do it in consecutive seasons. Of course, Eric Gagne had 52 saves in 2002 and 55 in 2003. But Jim Johnson is an example of a relief pitcher who has obviously gained too much notoriety because of the amount of saves he's accumulated. It's funny that the Baltimore Orioles saw this and the Oakland Athletics didn't. The Oakland Analytics. His trade to Oakland to be the closer has him making $10 million this season, like I just said. Uh, the Orioles are going to use Tommy Hunter as their closer. He'll be making $3 million this year. Hunter is getting his shot to be a closer the same way Johnson did a couple years ago. The most puzzling thing about this from the Oakland Athletics perspective is the fact that they have a more capable closer and they let him walk as a free agent to trade for Johnson. Johnson has the saves, but that's it. Despite 50 saves in 2013, nothing else stands out. His whip went up to a career-high 1.280. He averaged 7.2 Ks per nine innings pitched, a number that is very low for a late-game reliever. He also averaged over a hit an inning. I look at the thought of Johnson being one of the game's top closers as definitely being overrated. Balfour is getting $12 million over two seasons from Tampa Bay, while Johnson, like I said, is getting $10 million. I understand Balfour is a little old. Older. 
Um, but he's more of a strikeout pitcher who stands out from the other numbers than just saves. On 2013 alone, Balfour had slightly lower whip, 1.197, but much better Ks.9 innings pitch, 10.3, and hits per nine innings pitch, 6.9. The, the Athletics likes to go to numbers in their evaluation of players, but I think they did a bad job here. They're, they're paying a guy $10 million a season who only has the save stat to back up what he's done. It's uncharacteristic, absolutely. The team would be better off using Ryan Cook or even Eric O'Flaherty as the closer and allow the Orioles to either keep Johnson or trade him to another team. Team. So I really do think that was a bad job there. A couple things from a history perspective I want to touch on. Hack Wilson's season in 1930 was the best ever for a center fielder, even if you disregard his 191 RBIs as an overrated baseball stat. And, you know, you look at some of the greats to play center field, Ty Cobb, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Tris Speaker, probably the top five in my opinion. Ken Griffey Jr. is probably on the outside looking in, but he's certainly a top five type of center fielder. But look at the fact that uh, Hack Wilson, 1930, played in every game, completed 152 of them. He hit 356. 454 on base percentage, 723 uh, slugging percentage, a 1.177 OPS. It, you can't argue with those stats. Where's the RBIs? We're not talking about the RBIs. We're talking about 146 runs scored. We're talking about 208 hits. He, he had obviously what was at the time a National League record, 56 home runs. And I still haven't mentioned RBIs yet. For the season, his league-leading OPS plus was 117. He also led the league in walks, 105, slugging percentage, and OPS. He hit 356 for the season, but remember the time, 1930. It was only good for 10th in the league. Bill Terry led the league with a 401 average and was the last National League player to hit over 400. The Cubs won 90 games, two games behind the NL champion Cardinals. Joe McCarthy was let go with four games to go, replaced by Rodgers Hornsby. There was no MVP that season. But let's be honest, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that Hack Wilson was the MVP of that season. And I still haven't mentioned the RBI totals, which, by the way, 191 RBIs is a major league record. You could put some of the other seasons up there. Willie Mays in 54, 345, 40, 41, 110, 411 on base, 667 slugging. Ty Cobb, 1911, 420, 127, 467, 621. Tris Speaker, Hit in 1923, 380, 17, 130, 469, 610. Joe DiMaggio, 346, 46, 167, 412, 673, and 37. Mantle, 353, 52, 130, 464, 705, and 56. Ken Griffey Jr., 304, 56, 147, 382, 646 in 1997. Among those seasons, only Speaker hit for a higher average. Griffey hit as many home runs, and nobody managed to have a higher OPS than Wilson did in 1930. Say screw RBIs all you want, but Hack Wilson's 1930 season was the greatest ever in the history of the game for a center fielder. I'm ready for the rebuttal. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Great second hour. We're going to be joined by Kurt Simmons and Carl Dozer from their homes. Be back after this. Chicago, American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago. 